To another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by Warranty Wise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967, and we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley Davidsons, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. Lee Noble is a man who needs no introduction, really, um, but I'm going to give him one. He's the man behind Ultima, uh, Ascari, and, of course, Noble cars. Um, he's a unique individual. Very few people have achieved what he has in the motor business, and uh, he's a plain speaker. He's, he speaks his mind, and he's got some great stories to tell. He's my guest this week on the Speed Show. Lee, what was the first car that you that you consider you built? Did you start out modifying cars? Mm, I started off basically restoring classic cars because my dad did that. He, he had a couple of vintage cars and it was his hobby, you know. And as I was growing up, I tended to help with it and then I got sort of excited and when I got a driving licence, you could go out and buy yourself something, you know, and I like the old bangers, so I tended to buy old cars and do them up, and then he just took it off into a business at the time. So when we, ta- when we talk about, I mean, you know, my dad would take issue with uh, farming types, my dad's family, so my grandfather would never pay one penny more for anything than he absolutely had to. And so, as my dad tells me, he would run cars. He would buy cars as cheaply as he could, and he would run them until they literally, <laughs> literally fell in bits. And then he'd fix them with, like, bailing twine and, and bad wire and a bit of welding and drive them a bit more. And then when, at the end of their life, they'd be used as sort of, like, vehicles to move stuff around on the farm. Like my dad said, he said he had an Austin 16 that he used basically as a tractor, you know, because it was he'd been he'd been stopped by the police a few times for using it on the road, so he'd just thought, oh, he'd just use it on the farm. He'd just drive up to the top fields in it and it and stuff like that, take some stuff up there to feed the sheep. So when you say old bangers, what kind of cars are we talking about? Well, it, interestingly enough, an awful lot of them did come out of farmyards and barns and places, you know, we used to do Old MGs and MGTVs, TCs, TFs, you know, uh, MGAs were big at one point. It went in like a uh, trendy, really. What was trendy at the time in the 70s, it was Triumph TR6s was the big thing, you know? Oh, yeah. Everybody wanted one, and uh, and I I mean, I did quite well out of them for a while, because I quite liked them myself at the time, so, you know, I'd always got one or two about. My thing was, I enjoyed doing it, so I did it for myself originally, and everybody came along and said, oh, that's nice, will you do one for me? So it was a sideline, was it, originally? You had, this, is, this is another British thing that seems to um, not exist anymore, which is, although the, I suppose it's what the young people call a side hustle. I've said this on the show before. My dad worked in a paper mill. We're in the northwest of England. Yeah, they worked in a paper mill, 
a, a textile mill or down the pit, right? So I'm sure there were other jobs available, but, but that's what most people did. But in the evenings and at weekends, he'd sort of do up cars and motorbikes and sell them because he had four kids. And I don't think the wages from the paper mill were good enough. So, well, so he sort of had, a, had this side business. So were you doing fixing up cars on the side from, from something else? No, not really. I mean, I, I, when I left school, I was sort of um, ushered into a apprenticeship because in those days that was the thing you were supposed to do yeah. as, a, as a dutiful son and heir and all this, you know, stuff. So, I, my parents sort of seemed to arrange this apprenticeship for me as a, I don't know, as an auto electrician. Right. And. Uh, Frankly, I hated every minute of it. You know, it, 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 it was just like, I don't know, it was like prison, you know? Um, well, tell, tell me about it. I mean, believe it or not, I was in more or less the same position, except because at, on my mother's side, the family profession was business and accountancy. And so, believe it or not, I was studying to be a chartered accountant. And, and like you, I hated every, um, every minute of it. My accountant, great guy. But it, it it wasn't for me. It really was not for me. But was it was well, it was it useful to you? Presumably, you learnt stuff which was useful later on. I'd have to say no. <laughs> it, it it was one of those things that was announced one Christmas day that uh, they'd sorted this apprenticeship out for me. I have to go for an interview. Oh, and by the way, I bought you a moped to get there on. Um, what was it? Um, Oh, I don't, I don't want to swear. Uh, it was called a Putch Maxi. A Putch Maxi. Come on, they were... Do you know what, as well? I'm going to say this now. They're collectible. Can, I know. Can you I believe know. it? And I hated it. I mean, <laughs> you know, I hated it with a passion. This was just before I'd left school, so it was 1973. Yeah, 1973. And we were just getting to the age where we were old enough to have a licence to ride a Putch Maxi or whatever. And a lot of the guys had got decent mopeds, you know, like yeah. Yamahas and Hondas and whatever. And I hated this putch thing with a passion. I had, um, I had a, a Piaggio, a Piaggio oh. Chiao made by the same people that brought you Vespa. I would, I would have rather had a Vespa. And yes. you quickly learnt, didn't you, that the meagre performance that it had had to be preserved at all costs it taught you the it taught you the discipline of preserving momentum of you know yes. don't don't touch the brakes unless absolutely definitely necessary but the other thing you had to learn was lifting the inside pedal in corners by pushing down on the offside pedal or else the bloody thing had touched down and throw you off <laughs> yeah well that's why I ended up swapping it for a Honda SS50 at the time. Oh, no, that, uh, was a, that was a proper thing, the SS50. Well, yeah, it, it, didn't, it upset the parents a little bit. So anyway, I started this apprenticeship and um, on this SS50. And, uh, I mean, this is not a strange thing to say, really, but I, in a way I got lucky because I had a very big accident on this bicycle, Ooh. on this Honda. Well... The car hit me at rather high speed, which wasn't my fault as it happened, but it did put me in hospital for a year. A and, year? Wow. Yeah, virtually. Well, it was a year by the time I got back to work because recuperation, et cetera, et cetera. It was quite badly hurt at the time. And um, it was, you know, I walked back into that apprenticeship and I looked at all these faces and I seen these guys that had been there for 46 years, you know, and 
stood at a bench and they looked so sad and I thought, nah. I'll this. Do you know what, Lee? I've I've got almost exactly the same story. This is <laughs> this is so weird because, as I say, they had me down for chartered accountancy, and um, I wanted to do what I'm doing now. I wanted to be a. I thought I wanted to be a writer. That's what I thought I wanted to be. I wasn't exactly sure what sort of a writer, but I wanted to be a writer. And English was what I was good at at school, and I got through to the grammar school. But then I'd gone into, been sidetracked into accountancy because it was the family business. So it, it was almost completely ignored that I was totally unsuited to it. It's, it's, you know, I'm not a details man. I'm, I'm very much a man of broad strokes and, you know, and I get, I'm very passionate and enthusiastic about things. But I really need somebody else to dot the I's and cross the T's. And in accountancy, that is not. Good, because it's like you can't you can't get somebody in and go. Yeah, things are going well. You're not so bad. You don't need to pay too much tax this year. How much? I'm not sure. Uh, uh, probably a few thousand, <laughs> thousand, maybe hundred. I don't know, mate. How are you anyway? By the way, you can, it's, you've got to be absolutely bang on all the time. So it, it was wrong for me. So I then um, left that job on a Friday. My parents were absolutely furious. You know, I'd never seen my mother, who's who's a saint. I'd never seen her in such a foul mood because she thought I was ruining my future and this would have been the mid 80s when unemployment in Britain was at an an all time high Thatcher's millions, do you remember there were four and a half million people they reckon drawing the doll and my mother said to me right well if you think, because I hadn't told them I wasn't going back on the Monday, I'd left on the Friday and I'd said to myself I'm never going back there and I'd gone home, told my parents and They'd said, right, well, you better, you can take Monday off, but if you haven't got a job by five, five o'clock on Monday, you're going back in on Tuesday, you can just ring in sick on Monday. So on the Monday, I literally did. Do you remember Norman Tebby? I did what he said. I literally got on my bicycle and rode round Berry Lancashire knocking on doors and asking for a job. And the fourth door that I knocked on was a construction business and he gave me a job. And I, start, I started there. I started the following Monday, and I worked in that game, that tough game, working in construction in the north of England in the eighties, for nearly three years. And I was driving back one Friday in a Bedford truck, an old Bedford ex army Bedford truck, after a hard day, a hard day, with a guy called Phil, who I worked with, and we worked out. And this is what made me quit building construction. We worked out because he mentioned a birthday, that he was almost exactly twice my age. Um, you know, it was like 11 days out of him being twice as old as me. And we were talking about that, and I thought, wow, you earn exactly the same as me. I know mm-hmm. that for a fact, and we're, you're twice my age. So if I live as long again as I've lived now, and I'm doing this, I'll still be earning the same money. And I quit and went to university. Because I'd I, I passed my exams at school. I just, I just wanted to be out in the world earning a wage because, probably like yourself, uh, I wanted a motorbike and I wanted a car. And you, I wasn't going to be getting that on a student grant. I wanted to, I wanted to, I didn't want to be at school anymore. But then I realised that there was a price to be paid, which was maybe down the road. You know, you work your whole life for the same, effectively, the same wage for your whole life. Mm, I know, sad really. But, yeah. So you 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 quit the apprenticeship, and what what did you what did you go and do then? Well, uh, that evening I went to the pub. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I 
I got talking to a guy and his wife, you know, nice couple, and uh, I said, you know, I'll just quit this friendship because I couldn't stand it, and I didn't, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, our place are looking for somebody. I said, oh, interesting. Give me his number. He said, come round, you know, Monday morning. So Monday morning, I was got another job. It was, you know, a temporary one, but it was rust-proofing vehicles. And um, basically wanted a delivery driver for this company that rust-proofed vehicles. Was there anything in that, Lee? Did, did it actually work, the rust-proofing, do you think? No. Or was it a big con? It, it was the biggest con. <laughs> and, in fact, it generally made them worse because they put all this crap inside the car, inside all the boxes and the tubes, badly, and they did more damage getting it in there than you can dream of. Uh, well, yeah, because the they, is, they'd chip paint, wouldn't they? They'd chip, they'd chip paint by doing that, oh, and that would, be, that would be where the rock got in, where the paint had been chipped. Yeah, but whatever happened is you couldn't repair the car anyway because it was full of highly flammable black crap. And um, <laughs> if, you, if you had the slightest action and you tried to put a new sill on the car or a wing, you couldn't do it because you it, couldn't weld it. Yeah, because it burst into flames because it, yeah. it was full of this highly combustible oil that had been sprayed into the... Uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't have created a more dangerous environment to, for, for anything to be welded, really, could they? No, but, you know, at the end of the day, I was, what, 18 years old, and I was driving brand-new cars all over the all over the Midlands. And, you know, frankly, I was thoroughly enjoying myself. Yeah. You know? And it did make me realise one big thing. I love driving motor cars. And from that day on, I thought, OK, this is what I've got to do. You know, I want to drive cars. And I like to drive them fast. I've driven a couple of small accidents, you know. It's um, I just thought I really love driving, so that that really changed everything for me. Um, so how did you yeah. make the how did you make the change from working for the rust proofing company to being more involved with building cars and, and modifying cars? Well, the first rust proofing job was quite easy to get out of because I drove an Audi through the wall at the end of the workshop. <laughs> Was it an automatic by any chance? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. So you weren't very popular with management after you'd done that, were well, you? Well, it, it was actually the other thing was very funny. I had a Mark One Cortina at the time, and I said in the morning, "Can I nip it, put it on the ramp, and have a look underneath?" Because it was due for MOT. So we put <coughs> it on this. I put it on this four post ramp when I turned up, and I said, "My mate, I said, take it up. I'll go and make a cup of tea." I walked up the steps to make a cup of tea, and there was an almighty bang. And this bloody Cortina, and the ramp fell down, and it, it fell on the floor, except for one post, which is up in the air. So here's my car stuck on the ramp. That didn't go down too well, because we couldn't get it off. We had to get a crane in to get the damn thing off. Can I suggest uh, that it's hardly your fault if the, if the ramp fails? No, 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 but I shouldn't have put it on, because the manager wasn't there at the time, so I just I, I was cheating, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that, that was one black mark, I think, in the book, you know? And then a couple of weeks, what, what they tended to do, this black stuff they put in there, was cleaned off with paraffin, right? So they had paraffin everywhere, and this was all over the floor because it dripped out the cars, it dripped everywhere. And walking across this place was lethal, you know? <laughs> it was dangerous. Everybody fell over at least twice a day. Anyway, he said, move this Audi, doctors, somebody's Audi, um, out of the way. So I jumped in this Audi, and I got all this crap on the bottom, on bottom of my shoes, you know, this paraffin. So I go put it in reverse, so, OK, go across the workshop, 
put my foot on the brake, of course, it slipped off the brake and got wedged into the throttle pedal, which was quite interesting. Couldn't do a damn thing about it. The next thing, I was in Allied Carpet's showroom. <laughs> <laughs> was that a surprise to the good people of Allied Carpets? Yeah, well, I thought, well, I don't really want a carpet, so I think I'd better get on my bike here. <laughs> so needless to say, I was. Uh, that was a end of that particular um, part of my career, which you didn't miss again, I mean, but it was good money. Can I, can I just ask you something before we go any further, Lee? Because yeah. I, a friend of mine at one time, he, he's been in the motor trade all his life, and at one time, for a, a number of years, he was a representative for, a, I think they were Swedish, a company called Bigging. Is that right? And and they were in that business. They were in the in the rust proofing business, and and their their um, marketing line was, "Hey, we're Swedish. We know all about rust and rot in motor vehicles and how to stop it because we have a very extreme climate." And I said to him, "It's called Dave." So I, asked, I said, "Hey, Dave. That's why I did. He's, that's why I called him Dave because he's called Dave." I said, "Hey, Dave. What's in it?" And he went, "Right. There's the thing." And he grabbed my arm. He grabbed my arm. He said, "There's the thing." I never knew. And I said, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. You were the rep. He said, yeah. And you went round selling it to garages and, and service centres. Yeah. But you didn't know what was in it. He said, no, they wouldn't tell us because they said if we knew, we would tell everyone. It inevitably, it would get out. And I just think they were just covering up the fact that it was something really cheap and readily available that people could have just bought from, from any motor factors, mixed, mixed the two things yeah. together and, and, you know, and done it a lot cheaper. What, what, did you ever know what was in it? Um, it was some sort of bitumen, really. Yeah. That's all it was, but it, it, it was just black crap. Yeah, well, it's just like working in a, in a KFC. You never know the Colonel's secret recipe. No, <laughs> they don't tell you. Because... Right, <laughs> So you thought you'd you'd get out of that business after you drove the Audi into uh, unexpectedly into Allied Carpets, and, and so what what next for Lee Noble? Well, uh, you know, I wandered off that evening thinking, feeling a bit dejected, blah blah blah, and I was well, I I was restoring now. I was restoring something part time, you know, some car. I can't even remember what it was at this point. But anyway, my dad came home that night and I said, well, Dan, he said, oh, not again. He said, uh, he said what? <laughs> give this, he said, give this guy a ring, a mate of mine, because he came in his shop in the afternoon and he said, uh, his body guy, he owned a garage, and he said his body guy had left and they were a bit stuck. Um, so give him a ring, he might want some part-time work. So, okay, I gave him a ring and I ended up there for about four years and I ended up running the place, you know. Right. So, I was never sure to work. It was always one thing to another. But it, but it, but the body shop taught me a lot because we used to repair crash damaged vehicles in those days, and the mostly vans from East Midlands Electricity Board. You know, and, uh, they did not crash them well. So it was a busy busy place at the time. But that just led. I was getting more and more restoration projects at that time. Were you able to? Um do stuff sort of out of hours well yeah your well, own I stuff doing, I ended up doing like three days a week there and the rest doing my own business you know yeah and uh, it, this was going on quite nicely for some time but then I, I uh, in a nightclub one night I met one of the managers there and became really good friends with this guy and we were re he was really into cars and I was really into cars at the time 
and uh, he had a TR6, and I had one, and he wanted it restoring, so I did that. Yeah. And then we bought a GT6 together um, to restore. Which do I they, um, Lee? Do they deserve their reputation, the GT6, for being um, a very unpredictable car on the limit? Let me get let me get to that point. Okay. I'm going to point I'm about to make for a very sad reason, but anyway. Oh. Uh, me and this guy, we we we, want, we both said we we used to drive between his house in Nottingham and uh, the and the club in Loughborough in two TR6, and we used to drive very very quickly, and they were not good roads, you know. No. But it, we want we were so close, and yeah, I mean there was these were silly days, you know. But anyway, um, we bought this GT6 after this, and um, we both said, look, this is getting crazy. We really want to go motor racing. So we booked ourselves into the Jim Russell Racing School at... Um, at Donington. Donington. Yeah, I've yeah. done that. I did that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this was all set to go, you know, and, uh, and the next day after that, I um, got a phone call at... Well, I my girlfriend I was going out with her at the time about 10 o'clock at night. She'd gone out. I was looking after a kid for her. And... Um, she said, I got some bad news. And she said, she said my friend had been killed um, in the GT6. Bloody hell. Which was, um, you know, and I, I, at the time, I mean, I, I knew there was nothing wrong with the car because we'd spent so much money. It was right, you know, and I'd driven it. There was nothing wrong with it. But obviously, it had caught him out and he'd gone off the road on the road that we used to go on every day um, and hit a telegraph pole in the field, so... Well, a pal of mine was a Subaru Impreza and Mitsubishi Lancer man, four-wheel drive man in his yeah. performance cars, and, he, and he'd race motorbikes, he'd won championships. Uh, he was a bit gung-ho in a car, like a lot of racing motorcyclists have trouble with cars because yeah. they think, oh, well, I can't be hurting this thing. Look at all this metal around me and stuff like that. There's, there's a long record, sad, long, sad record of motorcycle racers coming to grief in cars. And he swapped his Subaru for a Honda S2000, which, of course, rear-wheel drive, yeah. front-engine front rear-wheel drive. On his way to work, he goes around this corner at his normal speed and it immediately swaps ends and goes backwards through some railings. I saw the railings. I saw the damage later that day and thought, I wonder who did that? And then I found out who did it. And he said, I couldn't believe it. He said, And I said, well, mate... <laughs> <laughs> You've gone from a four-wheel drive rally derive, you know, rally sort of uh, special to rear-wheel drive and, and very little in the way of driver aids. And it, and although he's a very skilled rider and driver, it it caught him out. So that change can can catch anyone out. Really, did it? Did it put you off? Did it put you off cars? Obviously not. But did it put you off driving fast on the road and send you into motor racing? No. Right. No, I did never, ever did do the Jim Russell thing. Though. Right. I just never bothered with it, because if it had been with me and him, we'd have done it and had a good laugh together, but, you know, on my own, I just couldn't be bothered, so I didn't do it. But it it's quite the reverse in a lot of ways. It just made me want to... It wouldn't take away some passion, you know. I mean, you can't take away your passion, what's inside you, you know, and... The whole reason I realised, the whole reason I was messing about with all these cars is purely because I wanted to drive them. Yeah. And drive them fast. And I progressed and progressed, you know, with these cars. And I got to the point where I was doing some Lotuses. Quite a lot of work on Lotus for people because they were becoming, you know, collectible, basically. 
And uh, I got one spare, so I thought, hmm, I'll go and try this. You know, so I got a competition license because you didn't need to go to a racing school in them days. You no. just sent away, sent your money off, and got yourself a license. So, and I booked into Mallory Park on a Wednesday morning, and you know, went playing on my own. Never been on a track before. So, <laughs> well, it, you could do it, so I did it. You know? Yeah, of course you could. And I got this Lotus, and I kept going round and round. I thought, I'm quite enjoying this, you know. And somebody was in front of you, and you thought, oh, he, the, the red mist comes up, I'm going to get past him, you know. And the moment you do, you're knackered for life. That's it, you you know. So, you know, it just got dafter and dafter. And you, then I started just doing the work to pay for for race, well, driving, well, really, racing. Yeah, well, how, how, many, how many people, you know, let's, how many people from sort of, you know, Enzo Ferrari, Colin Chapman, and many, many thousands of other, mainly men, some women, have, have had to think of a way to finance their passion for motorsport and one of the ways to do that is to modify or repair or build from scratch cars for people who lack that ability but have the same passion for racing that you do. Oh, yeah. Um, nothing new about it. It's just, it just the way it happened, you know. I, um it was great fun. In the property, like anything, it gets more and more expensive because you first go out and you're in last place, then you last with one, and then you think, I'm getting annoyed with this, I want to win this, you know. So then you have to buy an engine from an engine builder, which costs you two grand, you know, in those days. And where the hell am I going to get two grand from? So you start working all night. You know, it, it gets, it, motor racing is an obsession. Simple, really is. So when you get hooked on it, you know there is no, there's no turning back. <laughs> <laughs> there is a great tradition. I mean, you know, I'm a Lancashire man, and obviously in this part of the world we have Chevron, and yeah. uh, there is a great tradition here in the UK. Many name, other names I could mention, of low volume manufacturers like Chevron or like you with Noble and and with with Ultima, who have created cars from, uh, with the greatest respect, uh, railway arches, council lock-ups, broken-down bus garages in Blackpool, you know, <laughs> places like that. The cars yeah. have come out of these unlikely places, and they've taken on, and they've bested the world. They've, they've bested the world. They've been... They've finished first. They've been faster than the most exotic names that you could possibly pull out of the air. And I, w I wonder why that is. I mean, en Enzo Ferrari, again, I mentioned him, he called us the garagistes, didn't he? These these British types who build their cars in garages, you know, and he, he meant it to be disparaging. He meant it as a criticism to say that this was, you know, yeah. something to be looked down on. But we almost, well, not almost wear it, we wear it as a badge of pride, really, don't we? Oh, yeah. It's... Um... I don't know, it's, it's a very English thing, really. Because if you go around the world, there's very few other places that have... Well, they might have the idea, but they can never see it through. But the English... The mentality and, and the, the rules and law in England is still very conducive to it, which is interesting. Mm. If you go to Germany, you haven't got a hope in hell. Or Italy. Or Italy, yeah. no. You can't, you can't do anything. No. 
but most of most of the world you can't, to be quite frank. With you. Well, the states, I suppose, I suppose in the states, it, the the laws are more protectionist. Yeah. Protectionist, sure. but within within America, you still can do. I've had guests on the show here, um, <laughs> people like local motors, um, where they they build basically a kit, and they can either they can either build it up for you, and it can be turnkey, or you can yeah. go go to their factory, and you can actually build it yourself in their factory. So I know that within the states, they still have that sort of hands-on can-do mentality. But as you say, around the world, there are very few places that allow a private individual to basically go into the motor car business. And you think of the names in this country, whether it's Morgan or Westfield, or probably um, just going to do a long name, Caterham, Lotus, uh, Grinnell, your sort of competition, if you will, although I wouldn't imagine that some of them are your competition because most of the cars like that have been cheap and cheerful, sort of a Lotus 7 type car um, with a simple four-cylinder engine, sometimes a motorbike engine, cheap and cheerful. Lee Noble's never done cheap and cheerful, have you? <laughs> did you just well, think Did you just think there were too many people doing that or did, did yeah. it just not interest you? I, I think you need to... Um... Hold fire a minute on that one because you say that, but if you actually look, let's move on from the Lotus racing. I sold the Lotus, right? Because I suddenly got this thought theory that I could build my own car, yeah. which would be much better than bloody Colin Chapman. <laughs> you know, you just wake up one morning and think, oh, sod that, I could do that. Anyway, so that I'd got this uh, workshop at the side of my parents' house. It's like an old bit of an old barn, it's quite small. And I thought, okay, I'm going to build my own car. What the hell do I do now? You know, I sold the, I sold the Lotus. I got some money in the bank, and I thought, hmm, this will be interesting. But anyway, I got a friend who was working up the road. I've just restored his uh, RS2000 for him, repainted it, blah blah blah. And he was quite clever. He used to race uh, clubman's cars or something. No, Formula 1300 there were. Right. And we got talking, and he said, oh, you know, we just, you know, what it's like. You get talking with somebody, say, oh yeah, well, you could put that there, and you could use that for that, and you could do this for that. And once we'd had this conversation, there was no stopping me. So next day, I was down the scrapyard looking for engines, you know, for bits and pieces. What could we make this car out of? And the first car, it was an Ultima. It was my first design ever. It was done at my parents' house. And my mum called it Ultima. Wow. I could not not think of a name for this blasted car I'd built. And my mum came in there one night. She said, I've just thought of this. Why don't you call it an Ultima? And I said, that sounds stupid. It's a but, great name. Yeah, no, but at the time, I couldn't think of anything better anyway. So <laughs> I said, OK, we'll call it an ultimate then. And at, at first, I was sort of embarrassed about it, but actually worked out, as well, history will tell you that, it worked out quite well. It must have been but, quite funny when Nissan called one of their cars the Altima, and you yeah, were like, well, was there ever any confusion? With, with no, the... <laughs> but I, I, what I did say is I'll bet any money they wanted to call it an ultimate but realised they couldn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like the like the... Colt Starion, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a bit like that. So, when you went to the scrapyard looking for engines, what did you find? Uh, Renault 30. Right. Which, yeah, really weird old car, but there was at the time a lot of them about. And it had a V6 engine in the front with a gearbox on it, so it was uh, front-wheel drive, but, you know... You could just spin that round, couldn't you? No, you didn't need to, because the engine was out front of the, uh, of the gearbox. Right. Um, sort of Renault Subaru, like a Subaru now is, if you know, that's like sort of set up. But, um, 
so I bought one of these and I was driving it around for like best part of a year whilst we were building this prototype and just measuring it and then dipping in the workshop making something for it and then so hold on, you were you were driving the Renault thirty around yeah. for a year, thinking yeah. I can't wait to the day when we finally take the engine out of this thing and put it yeah. put it in the prototype. Well, you might you might as well. I remember once I went to buy an Alpha ninety. Do you remember those? Yeah, it was yeah. the saloon version, but it had the same two point five litre V six that the GT. I had a GTV and I'd blown the engine in it. I put a put a all in the side. I mean, you know, I remember a mate said to me. Um, how bad is the hole that I put in the block? And I said, you could put your fist in it. And he went, oh, this. <laughs> he just, like, you know, he, I think he thought there was a tiny crack. And I was like, no, you could put your fist in the hole. So I'd gone to Stockport to buy this Alpha 90 from this bloke who had, had the whole history of it. He told me it belonged to the managing director of Mangaletsi, who were a very well-known Alpha dealer. In this, he was telling me all this story and he was, as I was leaving, he ran down the street after me because he'd remembered that he'd bought the paint. He'd, he'd got some paint mixed to the exact colour in case it needed. And I thought, the engine's going to be out of this within the hour, mate. Because <laughs> it was going in the GTV6, but it didn't. But here was the thing. I drove it home and I couldn't stop driving it. I thought, I'll get around to the GTV6 in, in due time. I'm quite enjoying driving this. And again, I probably ended up driving that around for six months before I finally took the engine out of it. But you spent a year on the prototype. And, and what were you... Was there a car that was an inspiration for, for the original Ultima? Because to me and well, to a lot of other people, I'm going to say it, and you're going to tell me I'm wrong, I just thought, well, it's obviously inspired by a Group C car. Oh, yeah. Without, right, yeah. OK, cool. I mean, <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to shoot me down in flames then. I was fully no, no, prepared. No, 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 no. I mean, you know, in the 80s, what was the ultimate form of sports car racing was Le Mans, Group C. There was... There was nothing like it. They were faster than Formula One. Peugeot were clocking 260 Absolutely. miles an hour on the Mulsanne Straight in their group seeker. What engine did that car have in it? It had a V6. The Peugeot WM was the fastest car ever at Le Mans, the straight line. It had the same engine as the Renault 30 had in it. Blimey. <laughs> PRV V6 engine, yeah. the turbos in it, yeah? Yeah. But this is part of the reason why I was so into it at the time that, you know... It was Group C. I had to be a Group C. I couldn't afford to do Group C, as you can imagine. Nobody who could. You know, it was like we say, they were faster than Formula One, those cars. Oh, yeah. On, but, on certain tracks. Tracks with a very long straight, Le Mans, yeah. uh, Paul Ricard, faster than a Formula One car. Absolutely. But so we made this car, and it looked like a Group C car, and mostly it was made out of plywood and. <laughs> uh, well, the patterns were, you know, it was fibreglass eventually, but, you know, because we didn't have the equipment or skill to make nice curvy bits the first one was quite square looking and but um i had a renault engine in and a lot of people sort of took the piss out of it a bit but um it eventually won two championships with no problem whatsoever virtually no competition so you know to go from a scrapyard with about i think i had four thousand pounds in the bank at the time the sale of the lotus you know the next thing we'd won two championships in this ultima and we'd sold about, I'm probably about 30 or 40 of them, I think, by then. So it turned itself into a business. I mean, the whole thing originally was just because I wanted to race a car. You know, it wasn't particularly going to, I didn't set out to make a business selling cars. It's funny, I was at one of those cars and coffee type events, and um, yeah. it was in Cheshire, leafy Cheshire, the nice bit. 
and a lot of people turned up in McLarens, new, new McLarens, Lambos, yeah, yeah. plenty of Lambos, all that sort of stuff. And then a bloke turned up in a very early Ultima with a big Chevy uh, V8 in it. Yeah. And I noticed who drifted over to the Ultima, and I thought, ah, everyone who's come over to the Ultima are the car people. Everybody else are the money people. They're all over there looking at that cookie-cutter yep. Lamborghini that they've made thousands and thousands of. Yep. And here's something which is much, much rarer and, and to me, more special. And, by the way, on a racetrack, it would probably lap that, lap that Lamborghini within four laps. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, no doubt. But it was just... It was just... When we looked at this Ultima as well, it was just um, bringing together some of the very best components that are available, whether it be braking or suspension, steering or, or, or the engine, and then not adding anything else, just saying, right, that's it. <laughs> and if you, if, you, if you don't like that, then you, you are not going to enjoy the experience of owning or, or driving this car because, of course, the thing about it was, and the thing about Britain is... Um, He'd driven it there on the road. It was it was registered for the road, and you know it had number plates, and uh, and presumably it was on a classic insurance policy. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's probably paid about two hundred quid a year fully comp on that thing. <laughs> well, yeah, it's possible, but uh, yeah, that's where it all started anyway. So, and they're still going, as you well know, um, which is interesting because uh, yeah, the funny thing was this morning I went to a foundry. About something I'm doing at the moment to get some, some parts made, and he said, "Lee Noble, he said, oh, he said, we we used to make Ultima bits for you, and we still do, right? And, uh, and he said we're still using the same pattern that you brought in here 34 years ago. Wow! And that that I just thought, wait, you know that that uh, that's very interesting because apparently they're still using exactly the same pattern that I did." For that first car, I, I know somebody that almost bought one recently, and um, an original Ultima. What, what were the years that you were involved with that car, Lee? Just put it into context. The, the first the, was it ninety two, ninety three? The first ones appeared. No, eighty six. Eighty six. Yeah. Right. Wow. Well, eighty six till ninety five. I sold the project to the current owners. Right. And because I was very. What happened is we were racing and then we built the very first one with the Renault engine in. Then we built the ones with the Chevrolet engine in it. Um, like this one that got, I saw, yeah? Yeah, they got, they got more and more... Um, well, they got better and better, obviously, as most things do. You know, and as more, as people with money come along, they want better cars, so you build them a better car. Um, and, the, and the guy who owns it now, Marlo, he, he was one of my first customers. Um, so... That's how it all came about. He had an engineer, a civil engineering company, was in trouble, and I said, well, why don't you take on this ultimate project? Because I was busy doing other stuff at the time. And he said, yeah, I'll take that on. And, uh, that's, well, that's history. That's where he is. He's still at it. So, um, But we were busy at that time. We'd moved on to doing replicas of Ferraris and all sorts of stuff that was making, frankly, making more money. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the motor industry. It's a business, isn't it? It's yeah. some people forget. Um, lots of people seem to forget, especially in the specialist and sports car business. That um, I mean, we were, I, I won't um, 
I won't name the guy, but there's um, there's a kit car, and I knew we'd, we'd mentioned that. We'd, those words would come up at some point, and, you know, we're about sort of, what, 45 minutes in, and it, it, it's coming. But he built kit cars, and, and frankly, they're, they're awful. I mean, it's just, you know, the, the proportions of it are all wrong. It sits at the wrong height on the road. It doesn't make the right noises, all that sort of stuff. But I, t- I said to the guy, I'll tell you what, though, I'll tell you what he's made a lot of, a lot of money. That guy's made a lot of money. And we've all, yeah, I, I said, it's awful, but people must want it or else he wouldn't have made so many and he wouldn't have made so much money. But the ultimate for me, that is, it is an ultimate in many ways, so, which is one of the reasons why your mother was so right to think it was a good name. But it's not for most people. It's too harsh. It's too demanding. It's too loud. It's too scary for most people, even for most people who want a fast car. It's too much, oh, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. you got to remember, though, it started 35 years ago. And, and back then, what had you got? I mean, you'd got a few bad loads of seven replicas, duttons and things that were made out of recycled newspaper, whatever it was. Do you remember um, the Rickmans? Because I, I remembered Rickman as yeah, making yeah. some very sexy body kits for motorcycles, like a Rickman Kawasaki or something like that, was quite a thing. And yet, when they looked at the cars that they made on the same name, you thought, hey, what, what the bloody hell's that? Uh, well, <laughs> it, it is an interesting world, because it's no different to the main motor industry, really, OK, so kit car industry, and it's tiny, but a good car, or something that looks good, is good. And a bad car is bad. It doesn't matter whether it's made by... Japan or some idiot investor in a shed. You know, there is talent in every every industry. Now, you know, it's, it's, some of the kit cars were utter rubbish, as you said. However, there were some very, very good ones. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, that's, that's, that's the thing to get your head around. I mean, kit cars got a very, very bad reputation for a long time. That's probably still do have, I don't know. But, I mean, the Ultima was a kit car. Hey, guess what I've got? I've got a kit car. Go on. It's got gull wing doors. There, that's narrowed it down. Oh, blimey. Uh, UVA fugitive. No. I've got an Eagle SS. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so people always go, oh, the one with the um, the one with the VW engine in the back. Yeah, yeah. Go, no, no, it's yeah. got a it's got a Ford Kent in the front. It's a Mark II. Yeah. And it's yeah, an ugly yeah. car. There's there's, there's there's no getting away from it. And putting the engine in the front made it uglier. But yeah. people, forget, people forget, don't they? We've yeah. talked about this earlier in this conversation. There was a time when cars would rot, rot so badly that even though the chassis and the running gear were all still good to go, the body was completely past serving. And that yeah. was one of the reasons why the British kit car industry came to be because oh, yeah. this is a damp climate you know there's a reason that britannia was a punishment posted in the roman army because our climate's terrible so mm. cars rotted but what would you do if you had a ford pop or whatever it was the body was completely gone you had to throw it away well the specialist car industry and it is an industry, as you just said, would provide you with something that looked a bit like a Jaguar, a bit like a Lotus, a bit like a, a whatever it was, and you could build it yourself. And, and I've met so many people who've built a car themselves, and it's looked peculiar, to be honest. 
but they are obviously so proud of it. And I think, at the end of the day, they can say they have built a car. And there are a lot of people that have modified a car. There are a lot of people that have restored a car. But there are very, very few people who have sat there with chalk lines on the floor at one at the start, and then a car that you can actually drive. Very few people have actually gone on that journey and got to the end and had a car that you can drive. So when did you when did you switch? But I won't ask you why, but when did you decide to switch from ultimate to normal? When did you decide to go in a, dif- a different direction? Well, it's not quite that simple. Um, I sold the ultimate project because we were building the Ferrari P4 replica kit cars at the time, and they were selling in larger volumes, so that was fine. Then we had the recession in the 80s. I can't remember what year it was, but everything turned to uh, people just basically stopped buying toys, you know? Yeah. They're always the first things to go in a recession, aren't they? Motorbikes, fast motorbikes and sports cars, the first thing. And electric guitars. (laughs) They're the three things that people stop buying. Things dried up overnight, basically. um, But I was still quite quite involved in racing, so that was keeping me going, you know, preparing race cars and doing stuff for people and working on the cars we'd sold previously. So that was okay, but... I sold the people replica business to some guy, one of my customers actually, again. and um, I mean these things are probably a mistake in, in hindsight. I just probably should have kept everything, but you know. But Lee, what's the? Bit... Can you just quickly, if you can, can I ask you, how do you have a business where you are effectively? Please don't take this the wrong way. It's it's in the past now anyway. Where you're effectively counterfeiting somebody else's design, and I don't mean I I just. I just oh, I like to understand how how it's how you're able to do that or were able to do that. It, it's a very strange thing because I never wanted to do it in the first place. I mean, I I did the ultimate, which was nobody's counterfeit of anything. It yeah, was yeah. my car, my design, and I was very happy doing it. One of my customers um, from the ultimate days said, "Oh, I think you should do this," and they, he got me involved in this. Ferrari thing, and I'd never even heard of this Ferrari at the time, and I didn't even like the damn thing then, but anyway <laughs> he said to me, he said, you can make a shitload of money out of this, blah 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 and I can supply this, and I can help you with that, and uh, I sort of half-heartedly let it go, you know and it carried on, and it carried on, and we ended up building, what ended up being is it was an Ultima chassis fundamentally and he put this Ferrari-shaped body on it, and marketed it, and thought it was going to sell millions of cars, which of course it didn't. Um, in fact, it was a royal pain in the ass, to be honest with you, but the whole project. But And I was, again, very glad when I got rid of it. But um, where were we? I forgot, man. I lost the track. But, yeah, well, I didn't like the idea of selling um, replicas, to be honest with you. It's really why I didn't want to do it in the first place. And the moment came that I could financially get rid of it, then I did. So yeah. it was never something I wanted to do. Never something I enjoyed doing, and was definitely something I was, thank God for getting rid of. So, mate, I was the voice of a mic of Britain's most popular microwavable meat products for eight years, and somebody somebody said to me, "Did this? Did this sell you a?" Well, might as well say what they were. Rustler's Burgers. It was yeah. the best-selling microwavable meat product in the UK. Right, so that was a lot of money. And people said to me, do they send you a lot of free burgers every year when you do the voiceover for their advert? I said, no, but they send me a massive check. 
<laughs> and I had never eaten one, and to this day, I've not eaten one because there's something in my mind that says, "Well, uh, that can't that can't be right." <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, that can't be right. So we we all do stuff for money, and then probably like me, roll most of that money instead of investing it or or spending it, you know, in a way that that might make your lifestyle easier and and more comfortable. Yeah. Just plow that money back into what is your passion, and so you know, a lot of us do that, and so you were able to get going. With with noble cars, you're lucky again. But it's a great name, and it was it was sat right there, you know, yeah, on yeah. your on your driving license and your passport. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's a, a good job. I didn't think of it in the first car. I we don't know what would have been called now. Well, yeah. Would have been called like, latterly, but uh, yeah, there was a, there was other things in the meantime. I got rid of that project. I built a car. I decided I wanted to build a supercar, as you do, you know. Um, Foolishly, uh, in the middle of a recession, I decided to sit <laughs> which just shows out what a bad businessman I've always been. But never mind. I didn't, like I said from day one, I didn't do it for business. I did it because of the pleasure. I did it because I wanted to drive things, you know. And just before I started this project, McLaren had had two Ultimas off me for development mules for their F1 project. Right. And I've been down there and I've been involved with that, and they were. This new F1 thing came out, and it was 200 mile an hour, and there's little on, and this, that, and the other, and everybody's getting all excited. And I thought, hmm, they've used my cars as test mules for this, so I could build a car that would do 200 mile an hour, and I get one of those. Wake up in the morning with stupid idea mode, you know. Um, so after I'd spent all the money I'd got trying to build a 200 mile an hour car, which I did, um, but then trying to sell that car in a recession was a non-starter basically you know it was very very difficult um, i instead of that again sold the company to somebody um which was interesting because we ended up uh, building a race version of it and ended up at le mans next to mclaren so. was that the ascari yes yes yeah so yeah it's just a little story but it's um anyway i, ha- I ended up selling that to this guy and he, well, like normal, I didn't get on too well with him because I didn't. I thought he was a bit of a prat. So <laughs> I moved on from that one again. Um, <laughs> ended up with next to nothing, and thought, okay, there must be a, there must be a market for a little car, blah blah blah. You know, same old story. Wake up in the morning, think well, I've got nothing to do, so I might as well do something that I believe in, even if it's wrong. Um, <laughs> so I did. I built a thing called an M10, which was. Um, an open to uh, a convertible sports car, and uh, again, I don't think it would ever it, it would it would never have uh, revolutionised the world. It was a good car in every way, and uh, yeah, but you don't want to revolutionise the world, Lee. You, no, the history of no. the history of the car and the motorcycle no. is full of stories of innovative. Original thinkers who ended up in the bankruptcy court or the mental asylum, and then everyone else built on their designs and their thinking. You know, you think of people like Alfred Scott who built a twin-cylinder water-cooled motorcycle. He was originally in the textile industry in Yorkshire. Went to the Isle of Man, kicked everyone's ass there. But did he ever make any money out of it? And then 
50 years later, Yamaha go, oh, that was a good idea, a sort of, you know, water-cooled parallel twin, blah, blah, and built the Yamaha LC and sold many, many, many tens of thousands of them. Look at Fiat, the the little sort of X19 mid-engine, let's build a little small-engine mid-engine sports car for people. Didn't really work that well. Toyota went, what a great idea, MR2. And and again, you, you, you don't necessarily want to be the guy who has the original idea because that guy is rarely the one who who makes any money out of it because it's too new people don't like as, as i'm sure you're you're well aware people don't like anything that's too new and too different mm, no well yeah i ended up with this thing anyway i built this little car and uh, a couple of interesting stories about that just to put things in perspective is that um I, I, I was working on this thing one day and the phone rang and this guy on the other end of the phone said, I don't know me, but my name's Roger Clark. And I said, well, I've heard of you, yes, definitely. You know. Roger Albert Clark? Yes, yes. And I know, I know of him because, funnily enough, he used to deliver cars to his Porsche dealership when he had it um, just down the road when, when, I was, when I first started. So he said, I'd love to, love to meet you and I would love to drive this car meet the M10. I said, that's no problem, I can... He said, listen, I'm in the pub. That's unusual, because he's got a reputation for being in the pub. I think that's why he lost all his businesses. But nevertheless, that's another story. Um, So I went up to this pub in the afternoon, and uh, the guy could hardly stand up, you know. He was absolutely pissed, but... (laughs) He said, "Would, would you mind if I drove the car? And I thought, Jesus, what am I doing here, you know? I said, OK, then. I said, well, let's go around the back lanes, you know. And we got in this car. And I tell you what, I've never felt as safe with anybody driving. And this guy couldn't stand up. We couldn't get out of the car. And it was fantastic. He was a brilliant driver. I don't know why he just was. He never scared me at all, which is unusual, you know. And took it back to his house. And his two sons were not less than, less than polite. Um, I think more to do with his condition than anything I'd done. But nevertheless... I dropped him off at his house and I went home and I was a bit annoyed at the waste of afternoon. But anyway, later on in the evening, I get a phone call and he said, um, I've got somebody I'd like you to meet. Um, he could be very helpful to you. And I thought, OK, well, it's worth another shot, isn't it? So he'd arranged this meeting to meet a guy called Tony Moy. And Tony Moy was a page in Moy Travel at the time, um, which was a big motor racing travel company, you may recall, but anyway, based in Leicester. Plus, he had many other in- interests. But nevertheless, he met, I met this guy, and he said, oh, I'd love to get involved in this. And we set up Noble Moy Automotive, which is the start of Noble, effectively. Um, so we built a few of these cars, and we had a company by then and a workshop. And what, was the, what, was the, what was the idea of Noble, Lee? Was it What sort of guy were you thinking would buy the car, or wh- where were you pitching the car in the market? Were you thinking there's a gap between... Because I always thought that um, your man at TVR, Peter Wheeler, Peter Wheeler was really yeah. great at, at identifying a gap in the car market thinking there isn't anything like this and then building that car and then people going, oh, wow, yeah, this is, this is, there was a company here in the, in the Northwest who built motorbikes called CCM and they built the biggest engine single cylinder dirt bike in the world. There wasn't anything like it. And so that was, 
that was how they sold things by trading in a part of the market where there wasn't any competition by cleverly finding a niche and i think with noble where were you where were you thinking you were you were you were in the market between what kind of car and what kind of other car well, just to carry on with the M10 for one second, the M10 was supposed to be a Lotus Elise with leather trim. Right. Um, that's really where we did that one. But at the end of the day, the Lotus Elise was too appealing in a lot of ways. And, and because we with the leather trim, we couldn't make it for the same money. So that was a bit difficult. But Lotus at the time had the Esprit. Now, the Esprit had just turned into the V8 Esprit and was a considerable amount of money, and it, it, all it ever did was fall to pieces or overheat. So. Well, what I was going to say, and I'm going to say it because it was what I was going to say, that it, to me it was between an Elise and an Esprit in terms of performance, price, size, all those sorts of things, because it was kind of... Do you know what I mean? That's And there was, in the Lotus range, there was a big gap between the Elise yeah. and the Esprit, and there was nothing there. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.